Hello, hello. Welcome to a brand new episode of the SaaS Prince podcast, the podcast for content marketers in SaaS. And I'm your host, Yag. In today's episode, we are going to discuss how to leverage the right kind of content to deliver a better customer marketing experience. Sadly, most marketing focuses too much on prospects. Retention isn't as sexy as acquisition until you see the revenue leak due to a bad net revenue retention. It's often the difference between how a company goes from zero to five million in three years versus someone going there in six years. To discuss that, today we have with us my good friend, Mark Evans, the founder of Marketing Spark, all the way from Canada. He has been a marketing leader and a fractional CMO for years and is the go-to person for brainstorming, structuring your marketing plan, building marketing systems and driving revenue for SaaS. So without any further ado, hey ho, let's go. Hey Mark, I'm super happy to have you here. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thanks for the opportunity to speak on the podcast. You know, it's been it's funny that we were super connected on LinkedIn for a couple of years and then we disappeared from each other's feed. So it was great to connect, reconnect recently. And I'm happy that uh, one thing led to another and I'm on your podcast, your new podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And no, I'm super excited as well. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I've often noticed and learned from your posts is that we have similar point of views and also differing point of views in certain areas. So that makes it for a great conversation. Right. So let's get started. You know, you've been working with a lot of SaaS companies as a fractional CMO. Uh, which means you have taken a lot of ownership on the numbers and KPIs, which also means that uh, you must have spent quite a bit of time with founders in helping them decide what to bet on. So let's start with that. Companies focus on creating content. You know, too many companies tend to focus on uh, top of the funnel. They almost tend to overlook or even ignore bottom of the funnel, if I say. Uh, so I'm sure you've seen this. Why do companies do this? Well, the simple answer is that customer acquisition is sexy and people get very excited when new new prospects come into the fold. Customer acquisition in many, in the minds of many entrepreneurs equals growth. And what they forget is that once you at, attract a customer, once you get them on the bandwagon, you have to keep them because that's how you sustain revenue growth over time. But I think what's happened, if you look at 2020, 2021, 2022, a lot of B2B and SaaS companies were fueled by massive amounts of venture capital. Yeah. The investors were demanding huge rates of growth. And the way to make that happen was to attract lots and lots of customers. So they leaned heavily into customer acquisition. And that became the mantra. That became the focus and the North Star for most marketers. The problem was that growth can sag if you're if there's leakage at the bottom of the, of the yeah. bucket. So if you're losing three or five or 7% of your customers year after year, that means your customer acquisition needs to get like more and more aggressive and more active. And it's, it's a vicious circle when you're not paying attention to the customers that you already have and you're only focused on the customers that you want. And there's a Gartner report recently or a few years ago that said that it's 80% easier to keep a new customer, an existing customer than attract a new one. And that's why customer marketing is so important. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, uh, when I used to work in my previous company, Avoma, uh, my CEO used to say, one of the first things, you know, when I asked him, what's the KPI that he wants me to go after? He said, let's do um, good marketing because the point is in the early stages, you cannot afford to burn bridges. At the end of the day, you know, you need to make sure that if you're working on something, 
let's make sure everybody is converting well and we are being very very sensible and useful to people and not try to be self-serving all the time so i think that makes a lot of sense that connects with what you said as well right so imagine you know you're consulting for a plg startup right now who's just beginning to invest in content and um, let's say their primary goal is to uh, drive signups so what is the kind of content that you would uh, you know advise them to start with for clarity i'm asking from a funnel perspective and not necessarily the format if you're an early stage company and you don't have many customers or if you have no customers i would focus on top of the funnel initially what you're trying to do is two things one is drive brand awareness make prospects aware of the fact that you exist and then you want to position yourself as a go-to resource, someone who has their best interests in mind, someone who's focused on educating them so they can do their jobs easier, faster, better. One of the frameworks that I like to use for marketing is the jobs to be done framework, where you put yourself in the shoes of prospects and customers, and you try to discern what is their day-to-day job look like? What are their biggest responsibilities? What are their biggest challenges? What are the things that keep them up at night? And you're attempting to be as empathetic to a customer as possible. And once you have that insight, once you truly understand how they operate and what success looks like, then you can start creating content that resonates with them because it's about them and their needs and interests. And it has very little to do about you. The goal is to basically make them aware of the fact that, hey, we're here to serve your needs. And by the way, if you want to check out what we do, that's a bonus. In time, and almost in parallel, once you attract prospects, then you want to move into the middle of funnel content and eventually have bottom of the funnel content. But in the early days, when you don't have a lot of customers, most of your efforts should be top of the funnel. You know, that's an interesting perspective because I have a slightly different thought process here. Um, You know, for example, what happens is a lot of companies try to go top of the funnel and they tend to copy the HubSpot model and they try to go too broad, which is not even relevant to what they do. For example, HubSpot can write a blog post about, uh, say, how to create a GIF. Whereas, uh, you know, every other company starting out today cannot afford to do that. You know, they, they rather, rather focus on, uh, say, uh, product-led content where they can showcase how they solve the problem. And still keep it relatively top of the funnel to say that, hey, this is the problem. I'm still focused on your problem and showcasing how to solve it. And then not necessarily selling my product too much. But if you can see this is getting solved, then maybe you are interested in signing up. So that's one way. But yeah, that's that's the clarity. What do you think about it? You know, do, do you see people going too broad with that? Well, I think if you're HubSpot and you've got a marketing machine fueled by massive budgets, huge budgets, you can create all kinds of content and spread the word as far as you can. But the reality is most B2B SaaS companies don't have those marketing budgets. So you have to be focused. And to your point, you have to be laser focused on a a prospect's problems and as important what their aspirations are. What does success look like to them? And then position yourself as a source to address those challenges and inspire them that this is the way forward. This is the promised land and we'll show you how to get there. So yes, it's top of the funnel uh, content is important, but it does need to be very focused because you can't spread yourself too thin or too wide. So yeah. being goes back to the jobs to be done framework again, right? You know your prospects inside out. You know what motivates them, what their pains and problems are, and then you can create content 
tailored right to them, right to their needs. Absolutely. I totally, uh, you know, uh, empathize with that point and it makes a lot of sense. You know, one of my biggest gripes in the world of marketing is uh, the me, me focus versus actually trying to be really useful for the customer. Um, and it does sometimes bother me because when I see a competitor comparison page, an alternative page, uh, or even say um, competitor comparison blogs, they tend to kind of paint a holier than thou kind of a picture. You know, I know you are a fan of creating a structure and also templating things for scale. So what do you think are the components that one should have in a product comparison page? Do you have an example of a SaaS company that does that really well? Well, let's take a step back before I answer that question with the reality that most companies are me-centric, are product-centric, because that's what they know best. And they spend <laughs> so much time developing products and focus on marketing and selling products that they it's almost being lost in the eye of a hurricane. They have no perspective on the outside world. The other reality, other sad reality is a lot of customers don't know their, a lot of companies don't know their customers well enough yeah. because they don't talk to them. They take them for granted. They do the occasional survey or the MPS exercise, but they don't actually have real conversations with their customers. So they don't know what they're thinking or doing or feeling. So that's the reality. So going to your question about comparison pages, most comparison pages are frankly terrible. They're inauthentic, they're unbelievable, and you and they have no credibility because they're structured in a way that we're wonderful, everybody else is terrible, there's no reason for you to look anywhere else. And you know those comparison pages that have all the green check marks beside, there's a row of green check marks beside the product, and then the competitors are teeming with red X's? <laughs> right. As if a prospect will look at that and go, oh, come on, well, that's the obvious choice. Why would I look at the competitors when this one is so good? So that is the wrong approach, but that's the approach taken by you know, 90% of companies. A better approach, the smarter approach is something that Drift uh, or does when it compares itself to Intercom, which is one of its biggest competitors. And the page specifically is Drift versus Intercom. So number one, it's focused on two options. And I don't think you want to have more than two options because in most cases, if you think about it, someone who is in the consideration set is probably looking at two or three or four competitors, not 10. They've narrowed down their choice. So they're at a stage in the funnel where I really want to get a sense of how are you different or better than the other company that I'm considering. So in the case of Drift, they compare themselves to Intercom, but they do it in a way that doesn't denigrate Intercom. They structure the page in the sense that we're really good at this. They're really good at that. But our approach is different. Our product is different. We're not saying that Intercom is a bad product because it isn't, but we're just saying that if you want a product that offers these benefits and these features, then we're the obvious choice. And that's what you're trying to do marketing. Make, position yourself as the obvious choice. And then the other thing that's really powerful about it is it's teaming with social proof so that they've got stats in terms of how effective Drift is in terms of driving conversations, reducing sales funnels. They've got customer testimonials that highlight the value of the product. So there's authenticity there from a customer as opposed to a company simply raising its hand and saying, we're great, we're great, our product's awesome. So it's a multifaceted sales and marketing vehicle that is believable, that strikes you as authentic and provides a different perspective without saying, we're great, 
and the competition is crap. And I think that's a much better approach to competitive pages. No, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense, primarily for one reason that, you know, when you very clearly know that somebody who is comparing intercom is coming to this particular page and you exactly know how you are different from them, it's your job to educate them that, hey, if you're this, go there. But if you're looking for X, Y, and Z, come here because we do these, these, these things. Because the whole point of having a page is not to one-up your competitor or put them down, but to educate that, whom do I make sense for? You know, For example, making it too simplistic, I could say that, hey, if you're from customer service and customer support is your focus, maybe Intercom makes a lot of sense. But if you are from a sales and marketing background, we make sense because we have this ecosystem and we are also building a revenue acceleration engine. So that makes, yeah, absolutely love that. And the one thing that I will add is that the cherry on top of the Sunday for Drift is really nice design. And often as marketers, we forget about the fact that the look and feel of a marketing asset is as important as the copy. So when you go to the Drift page, it's well laid out. It's got things pop out. So it's, it's, it's easy to access. And so you can go through a really long page but you're engaged throughout because there's different sections that appeal to you in different ways and give you different types of information. So I will reiterate that design matters when you're creating these comparison pages. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can't agree more. Right. So now that we are into the intent mode, let's talk about, um, you know, customer marketing a little more in detail and what should it uh, cater to and what often kind of gets up catered right now. We often see, for example, a monthly newsletter which features the so-called list of exciting product updates or maybe even a lame case study that uh, tends to focus too much on themselves versus the customer, just like we discussed the the product comparison page right now. And um, you talk about the need to create a laser-focused, engaging, educating, and even inspiring content for customers. So maybe, you know, let's talk about a framework if you have one for customer marketing. And maybe if you can give an example of uh, what does a good newsletter look like or how does customer marketing using in-app messaging look like from a value delivery perspective? So the framework that I would use would be educate, engage, and inspire. And those are the major themes. Unfortunately, what a lot of companies do when they do customer marketing is basically promote, promote, promote. It's all about the product and the updates and how you should use it and why you should use it. And it's very customer, it's very company centric, and that's the wrong approach because what you're looking to do is connect with customers and let them know that we're vested in helping you get more value from the product. We want to educate you on things that you need to know, both about our company and about the industry overall. And we want to inspire you so that you see us as a helpful and trusted resource. So that is sort of the high level framework. So a, a newsletter, for example, would, yes, include information about the product, but it's geared towards here's what you can do with the product now, and here's how it's going to make your life easier or more successful. So product updates are not about the product. It's about the customer and how they use it. Yeah. Uh, um, content, both internal. So here's our latest blog post. Here's our, our guide that that is very prescriptive and helps the customers either use the product better or think differently. And I think the other thing that a lot of companies are afraid of is third-party content. There's some amazing content written by other companies and they don't have, they don't necessarily have to be competitors, but other companies that provide that kind of intelligence and that kind of insight that a customer will appreciate 
because they're, they don't have enough time in the day. They don't have time to find that great content. So if you can bring it to them again, yes, you're showcasing somebody else's content, but you're positioning yourself as that source, that trusted source. And then finally, it's you need to inspire your customers. And the other the, one of the best ways to do that is not lame case studies, as you say, but case studies about how customers are using the product in different ways. All those different use cases that sometimes it's even best to talk about use cases that are out of the box or things that don't people think about or case studies that highlight the value of your product in ways that your customers may not think about because it's not front and center for them. So you combine those different approaches or different that different types of content. And you've come up with a newsletter, for example, that your customers look forward to reading, that you get open rates and as important, you get click-through rates because it matters to them and it's, it's geared to them. And one of the biggest things about customer marketing is that you want to give people reasons to have conversations with you. You know, how can I use the product differently? How can I get more use out of the product? How can I have more licenses? Because Yes, you're trying to educate them, but you're also trying to keep them and upsell them at the same time. No, there are so many things that I loved about what you said, because one, uh, I have often seen and probably also have been guilty in the past where we've made newsletters a dump yard of links where we distribute our content primarily and uh, try to promote our uh, product. At the same time, uh, the other interesting part that I've often wrestled with, and I think it's a good tangent to go on, is when you said there are going to be always some customers that use your product a little differently. And uh, I mean, you are one of the right persons to talk to when it comes to topics like positioning. You want to position your product in a certain way. And if you're talking about case studies that are edge cases and entirely different, does it you know, uh, take you a little off tangent from where you want to be and who you want to talk to? In terms of what perspective? I mean, in terms of like, say, if, if you are targeting certain use cases, like say, for example, if I have a conversational intelligence tool that is primarily focused on, say, um, salespeople and customer success, and I've seen somebody using it really, really well for, say, product management and getting customer feedback. Now, that talks to an entirely different audience while I'm positioning myself towards revenue intelligence. Does it make sense? It's a balancing act to be sure, because yes, you do want to look for new ways and new audiences for your product to expand and drive growth. So that makes sense. At the same time, you have to be careful about not diluting yourself and not straying too far from the customers that matter to you. So yeah. if 95% of your customers are using it for customer intelligence and there's a 5% use case for marketing, yeah. it's maybe it's a time for an experiment you know, to create some content uh, focused on how to use a product for marketing as an experiment, but you don't want to lean too far into something that hasn't got the potential to actually emerge into a real business line. So, but I do think part of what you've highlighted is the fact that marketing is a combination of, you know, doing the same marketing day in, day out, being very disciplined and being very focused and being very structured, but at the same time using five or 10% of your, of your marketing resources for experiments to dip your toe in the water and say, Hey, let's do this and see what happens. And if you get some traction, then you lean in a little bit more. So just, it's just a healthy way to keep your marketing interesting and always looking for new opportunities. Makes sense. And also you think about, uh, you know, using resources from, uh, you know, other companies and uh, other domains as well. That has really helped me in the past because whenever I've tried to use, uh, you know, distribute content, 
who is not necessarily a competitor but somebody in the ecosystem who is doing something really really well it has also helped us build the right kind of relationships across the ecosystem you know uh, somebody uh, promoting you that shows that okay uh, these guys are not all about themselves they do care about others in the ecosystem so yeah that makes sense right uh, now that we've discussed a little bit about the positioning side you know uh, let's let's talk about that as well one of the probably most low hanging fruits in terms of communicating your value proposition is the about us page you know for a typical saas company and interestingly uh, it is also one of the most messed up pages for a lot of uh, reasons i know i think you you if i'm not wrong you're a fan of how slack does this really really well so tell us what do you really like about it what are they doing right uh, in getting their um, you know about us page right or the company page right and what can a company learn from and uh, say probably make it a formula to uh, put up the right kind of content there so let's start with data point the about page for most b2b and saas companies is the second most visited page on your website after yep. home yep. that's the reality yep. so you would think that every company would make sure that it's about page is awesome because it's the place where you educate where you tell your story and you convince somebody that what you do is relevant to them the reality is that most about pages i would argue are afterthoughts after you put the home page how it works the product page you know they get to the the about page and they and it feels like they just kind of whip it off it's something that's done really quickly yes we'll put our leadership team up there and our vision and mission statements and it ends up being incomprehensible and so my view of a of a and about page and this is why i like what slack does is that if i don't know you if i don't know what you do and and how you're relevant to me yes i may go to the home page but i'll also check out your about page and i want you to tell me right away what you do and what's in it for me that's job number 1 because if it's not there or it's confusing then you haven't done your job educating and engaging me a lot of about pages start with mission what we believe our people you know our our vision and the fact of the matter is prospects and customers don't care that's you <laughs> that's kind of like that's that's sort of an internal you know looking at your uh, gazing at your belly button right <laughs> it's not relevant to them because it, it's it's just stuff that because here's the thing customers care about themselves prospects are very selfish right what they care about is how are you going to make me more successful how are you going to make my life easier and if you and if you have an about page it's not about them then they walk away so start with thinking about a very customer prospect centric view of the world tell them what you do why it matters how you're relevant and then a little bit about your history like provide me with that back story that explains to me how you came to be so a lot of um companies their their credibility comes from the fact that you had these entrepreneurs working in within an industry and they realized there had to be a problem to be solved and so it demonstrate they may know your world inside out so that about page should basically position yourself as a credible interesting and engaging uh prospect um for somebody considering a new solution and then after that tell me about your leadership team you know tell me about your your corporate culture and your mission and your vision but there's almost like a pyramid when it comes to an about page in my mind and the pyramid really at the top really has to say tell me about what you do and then you can explain the rest of the story and unfortunately a lot of companies 
they they fail the about page test. And I could probably make a living if I wanted to <laughs> simply by positioning myself as the about page expert. I, I swear to God, there's there'd be so much potential there. In many ways, you know, this is exactly like your uh, golden circle, right? You need to say why you exist and, uh, you know, um, how you do what you do and then what you do as well. Because the whole point is you're, you're absolutely right. You know, when I, when the company starts with mission, mission statement, which is probably what, um, like five to 10 years down in the future, whereas somebody visiting your website is interested in how you can help them today. <laughs> you know, it's, these are two entirely different paradigms and, uh, you're probably not talking to the right people. What, what makes sense to an investor does not make uh, sense to a customer. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I always start with brand positioning when I work with new clients, regardless of whether they think their positioning is good or not, because positioning will give you the, the firepower for your homepage and your about page and your sales deck and your social media updates. And you have that consistent story across the board and you can just take your value proposition and pretty much slap it on your about page with some modifications, of course, and tell a really powerful story that resonates with the people that matter to you or should matter to you. And, uh, you know, about us experts should be one of the components you definitely sell. You know, that's, that's brilliant. That's, I mean, it's not obvious to everybody in retrospect, when you put it in so many words, it's, it's like an aha moment. Oh yes, that makes sense. But you're absolutely right. 99.9% of the companies about us is the last page of content they end up writing. And it's probably spent, like they spend hardly 30 minutes on that. Now you got me thinking though. Now I'm thinking, you know, I'm hammering away, trying to help companies with strategy and tactics. Maybe it's all about positioning myself as an, as an about page specialist. You know, you've got, you've got case study specialists out there. You've got people who focus on testimonials. If you became the about page person, the expert in structuring about pages, man, that would be an, a niche you could own. Exactly. Maybe I've just given away a great business idea. I don't know. <laughs> right. That's awesome. All right, so uh, let's go to the second section of our podcast, which we call the rapid fire section. I'm going to shoot five pointed questions at you. The questions may be short. The answers need not be. So fire away whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Okay. All right, here's question number one. Most marketing is slow burn, not raging fire. This is something that you said. Mind expanding on it? If you're an entrepreneur or CEO, you expect marketing to, to basically be instant gratification exercise. I do X, then Y should happen right away. And that's a myth. Yes, there are cases in which marketing has an immediate impact. It drives sales and leads overnight, but most marketing doesn't work that way. Most marketing requires investments and patience. And yes, I believe that the best marketing is a slow burn. So every day you're working away, you're working away, you're, you're educating, you're inspiring, you're engaging. And over time, you build marketing momentum, you build brand awareness, brand affinity, and you position yourself as one of the go-to options for prospects. If you're expecting marketing to be like a hundred meter sprint where you do something and, and success happens in, in 11 seconds or 10 seconds, not going to happen. So that's the reality but it's something that a lot of CEOs have a hard time accepting. No, this reminds me of a lot of conversations that I've often had with sales teams. And they would always say that, hey, you did something last month, which turned up the number of uh, signups and the quality of signups also went up. Can you do that more? And I'm like, I just did an experiment. That content worked. I cannot uh, you know, uh, assure that every piece of content will work the same way. We can get 
some ballpark of the direction but it's not that exact science of you pulling a lever and suddenly things starting to move now it's going to take time absolutely right so here's um, question number 2 who is one person in the organization according to you who should own thought leadership that that's a trick question <laughs> well it maybe the the easy answer is that marketing should probably own thought leadership should probably be the quarterback to use an american football term for thought leadership but sales the ceo sales and product should be involved in the process it has to be a collaborative process so maybe i'm maybe i'm checking out of answering your question but you know thought leadership has to be driven by different perspectives and views of the world so if you've got thought leadership driven by marketing you're going to get a biased view of the world a biased point of view you'll get one person or a small number of people will have their view where the best thought leadership is diverse um approaches different topics and different editorial pillars from different angles and the only way to make that happen is you have different people at the table so it doesn't mean that the sales person or the ceo needs to create thought leadership they need to be the ones that actually generate that content um but they there can be collaborations and partnerships and then marketing can facilitate all of that but at the end of the day you've got everybody at the table everyone's got their views and the best part is that the most interesting the most relevant um the most topical pieces of thought leadership should rise to the surface because everyone's aware of what everybody else is thinking um and that should be a good formula for success no yeah uh, you know the moment you said marketing is uh, should be owning it i was about to counter question you but then the explanation made a lot of sense because for me my biggest gripe is that when you know a leadership team asks marketing to own it and then they're not supported by subject matter experts or you know the point of view doesn't come from the top then it's going to be regurgitated content from what's available on the net what are the first five search results then you're not going to build a thought leadership there it's it's just uh, you you rather use ai to write content yeah i remember i remember talking to john collins when he was the uh, head of marketing for intercom and he was an ex journalist and one of the things that he stressed was that he wanted content written by not only marketers but sales people product support um product development yes. so that you had different voices with different areas of domain expertise at the table talking to prospects because prospects yeah. obviously have different interests and then if you can present them with different views of the world then that will resonate because marketing isn't like a one size fits all proposition it comes in different types of flavors so that struck me as a really good way to approach thought leadership and content marketing overall marketers can go straight for those people once you interview them yeah absolutely cool so here's uh, question number 3 the first time when you launched your new brand positioning course it didn't take off and you had to make a lot of changes so what was your one biggest lesson from that exercise i've been thinking about that because i've wanted to launch a course for many years and i was invited to be part of the maven accelerator and there are two key lessons that i learned one is that price point is is really interesting these days uh because people are tapped for money right now everyone's being very careful with budgets and so you have to be very careful and the thing about it is is that it also price aligns with product so i was selling a product that was a nice to have very i think it's a must have 
but it's a nice to have. So there's a price point for that. But if you, if I were had a course that was about how to use ChatGPT to drive amazing content, then you can charge a higher price because there's more demand for that. There's more interest yeah. in that. So you have to balance demand and price. It's classic marketing, classic sales right there. So that was number one. So I had to lower the price of the course. Uh, in hindsight, I think it was a good decision. But the one thing that I will add going forward is not only offering my course as part of that, but actually offering access to me after the course as an added bonus to increase the value of the course. So price is a really important thing when it comes to uh, course uh, marketing. And the other thing that I found in the other scarce commodity out there is time. The way that Maven asked their people to structure their courses was as sprints, you know, over two or three weeks. And the problem with that is that people have jobs to do. They're busy, really busy, because a lot of my audience marketers, they're doing more with less or the same. So, you know, they're just trying to squeeze as much as they can into every day. And I recognize pretty quickly that trying to get them to do a lot in a little wasn't going to work. So I spread the course over over five weeks. It allowed people to breathe. It allowed me to breathe. It allowed people to take the lessons and the exercises that I was giving them and actually do them because the magic of the course is not me talking to them and telling them what to do and what to think. It's actually giving them exercises and worksheets that they can work through on their own time yeah. so that they can go, oh, now I get how the jobs to be done framework works. How, oh, now, oh, now I understand how the modern buyer persona actually should happen. And it just felt like a much less stressful way to teach the course and and take the course as well. So a lot of lessons. Um, looking forward to taking another crack at it. Um, and I think the other lesson I think I, I realized is I have to get better actually marketing the course. It's funny, a marketer complaining about not marketing their own course, but it's almost the cobbler shoes kind of problem. You know, you can do great marketing, but not for yourself. So that's a big challenge as well. No, 100%. You know, both the points resonate a lot with me because, you know, having published eight books, I will be the first person to say that I've been the worst when it comes to marketing my books. So it's it's uh, no different than that. And, uh, you know, your learning with respect to the course is so on point because the last time around when I was, trade, uh, you know, trying to put together creating a course while working for my previous company, it was very easy to put down the components of the course, like what are the things that we need to cover. But spacing out the time and the kind of uh, assessment and the exercises and realizing that people have jobs to do so that will they have the time? We cannot blindly say that, hey, uh, do this around the weekend and come back because that's not how it works. We need to spread things out. Yeah, that's that's a huge learning I had as well. Yeah. The other the other piece of advice, the final piece of advice, which is a course, is that a lot of people like you and I think for a long time about building a course. It's very exciting to have passive income or to actually be a teacher. <laughs> and a lot of us put the frameworks together and we structure it all out, but we never do it. And I think the biggest accomplishment, the thing that I'm most proud of is not necessarily attracting students, but the fact that I actually did it. I went through the process. I, I followed the journey. And at the end of the day, I came out um, with my first course completed. And that gives me the firepower and the information to actually do another, a second cohort, but keep improving, keep doing. So if you're thinking about doing a course, just do it, just make it happen. You'll learn along the way. You'll have some guinea pigs, which may affect your pricing early on because you may want to make it less painful for people because they're, they're part of the, your, your course development, but 
just do it. Follow the Nike method and just do it. Crawl, walk, and run. Absolutely. Mm, exactly. Cool. So here's question number four. If you had to pick one, I know it's going to be a hard one. Would you be picking a positioning project or would it be a strategic advisory project? That is a hard one, but I would say that positioning is probably the one that I would pick. Actually, I take that back. It is the one that I would pick because I fundamentally believe that positioning is so much more than a marketing exercise. It's so much more than simply creating brand positioning statements and value propositions. It provides companies with a consistent and coherent narrative that underpins marketing and sales, product development, uh, hiring, raising capital, customer success, because it provides everybody with like a roadmap for success. It's that internal blueprint that tells people, here's what we do, here's who we serve, here's why it matters, and this is how we're different. And so if everyone's reading off the same page, um, then it makes your marketing, every, it makes everything more consistent and more successful. So yes, positioning. I love that. And I almost expected this answer because that's what you're most known for as well. All right. So here's the final question. And this is the easier one. If you had to give a shout out to one person and say, Yag, you need to invite this person on the SaaS Prince podcast, who would that be? There's a lot of people with, with really interesting points of view, but I'm going to give you a bit of an outlier. I'm going to give you somebody who sort of uh, is a guy named uh, Andy Churchill. And he is a teaches at McGill University in Montreal, and he helps companies and entrepreneurs, people and entrepreneurs and students do better presentations. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. I, I, I'm a firm believer in the power of in-person uh, interactions. So being on stage, meeting people for coffee, doing meetups, doing public workshops, and a lot of us, most of us, are really bad at public speaking. We get we go on stage and. We're natural conversationalists, but we get on stage and we get nervous. And Andy is a real specialist in not only teaching people how to act on stage, but how to how to um, perform virtually as well. And taking advantage of the power of Zoom to engage people and do it in a really user friendly way. So my recommendation was talk to Andy because it's it's a part of marketing and sales that doesn't get enough attention. And he's somebody who's really doubled down on that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to look forward to connecting with Andy Churchill. And uh, maybe, you know, if he has time, let's have him on the show as well. All right. So you hit all five questions out of the park. That is fantastic. That was as smooth as butter. Okay. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate that. Awesome. So uh, if the listeners of the show, if uh, they want to connect with you, um, what's the best place? What's the best place that you prefer to connect? Easiest place is probably LinkedIn. Just do a search for Mark Evans, Fractional CMO, and you'll find me there. And if you want to check out my website, it is marketingspark.co. Awesome. I'm sure a lot of people will connect with you. I'm sure they're already connected to you. And um, if you were to share a parting message to our audience, what would that be? I think marketing is a balancing act between focusing on the foundational parts of marketing, positioning, messaging, you know, customer intelligence, and then things like customer acquisition, customer marketing, performance marketing. So marketing is not a one size fits all proposition. It always has to be in balance. So as much as you want to acquire customers, you need to keep them. As much as you want to drive sales, you need to drive brand awareness as well. So it's it's you got to balance. It's a balancing act, and that's what makes marketing challenging but also exciting at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. That's an amazing message and a lovely place to wrap this episode. 
Thank you so much, Mark. It was such fun conversing with you today. And uh, really, thank you so much for making time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.